WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grove. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the co creator of the Kickstarter funded and Scout Comics published Impossible Jones and the co creator of DC's King Shark, Carl Kiesel. Welcome to the show, Carl. Well, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, so we are here largely to talk about Impossible Jones, your Kickstarter creation with David Hahn, Tony Avina, and Richard Starkings. Uh, you just launched a Kickstarter for the next chapter, Impossible 2B, uh, an Impossible Jones and Captain, Captain Lightning team-up slash crossover with one of your earlier indie creations, Section Zero. Uh, the campaign's already fully funded. So does this mean that you get to breathe easy now uh, for the next couple of weeks? Or are you kind of still caught in the churn of stretch goals, deadlines, et cetera? Oh, it's, it, it's never ending in, in, a, in a Kickstarter world. You know that. And, um, you know, the, uh, the, the funding certainly has paid for a basic cost of the book, but um, it, it doesn't really pay for the full cost of the book. I, I actually... I need to hit about 35,000 before I can really rest comfortable at, at night. So I've okay. still got about, you know, 10,000 more to go before I'll be able to sleep at night. Know for sure the bills will be paid, you know, and, uh, you know, and maybe be able to take my wife out to dinner or something, you know? So, um, so, so, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we funded quickly and that covered some very basic costs, but now, now we're like really trying to make this a livable wage. Okay. All right. And that's, that's why those stretch goals matter. Absolutely. I will say at the time of this recording, you are at exactly 666 backers. I know. I I actually just did a post about that because it's a scary number. (laughs) It's a devil of a number. So I'm looking for an angel to get us off that number. Uh, And I will drop in Iron Maiden's number of the beast here. No. um, So uh, while this is going on, backers actually just started receiving the last Impossible Jones uh, story, the Holidays one shot. Uh, correct? Yeah, the the um, Imp and Holidays one shot. Uh, I just mailed off the last packages today. Wow. Um, so that that originally was going to be in people's hands six weeks ago, but you know the pandemic has messed up everything, hasn't it? Oh, and sure. the printers, yeah. the printers across the board, and I didn't know this going in, um, but the printers across the board are, are running very late. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, the Scout comic was supposed to be out the first week of September and didn't come out until three weeks later, the 21st. And that was that was because, quite honestly, we were using the same printer (laughs) and they printed my book before they printed the Scout version of Impossible Jones. So um, but yeah, that that delayed me by six weeks. Otherwise, um, this book would have been in people's hands quite a while ago. Um, But I, you know, I needed a Kickstarter now because. I, I'm going to bills to pay pretty soon. So, you know, I mean, there's the financial reality. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm stacking one on top of the other and burning the candle at both ends. And believe me, I, I don't enjoy that. That is not my way of running things, but uh, th- that's what I have to do this time uh, in order to make sure that uh, the lights stay on in our house, basically. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's crazy how this, this uh, sort of supply issues are, are, are just starting to come, come to a head now. Yeah. I'm seeing like publishers are pushing books back and like my shop hasn't gotten like boards in in weeks, which I mean, Oh really? Maybe, yeah, yeah. Understandable. Understandable. You know, just interesting the little ways that, that things are kind of cropping up now, but uh, you know, with this 
sort of constant churn of, of, of Kickstarters, uh, you know, how much of your home is like a mini postal facility at this point? I've got, yeah, I've got a little warehouse set up in the basement, you know, with a, we got some, you know, high tables so I don't have to bend over. And, uh, you know, we, we can set up a little assembly line. And um, my daughter, who's seven years old, she uh, she helped put a, a lot of stickers on the on the finished packages. She really doesn't quite know how to slide things into bags and stuff yet. And, you know, and making sure the right things get in the bags. But she was very helpful getting all the stickers on the outside. And, you know, I, I, I'm 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 all in favor of child labor, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when it's. In the family, in the family. Like, yes. You know, like I say, you know, Impossible Jones is probably not going to make me rich, but maybe someday it'll make her rich, you know? Um, I always say I'm following the Iron Man business model, which is it, it exist in obscurity for 40 years and then become an overnight sensation. You know, I mean, when that first Iron Man movie came out, I was, I was at the bank, I was cashing a check from Marvel and like the cashier goes, oh, I just saw the oh, Iron Man movie. Is he new? You know, like she'd never heard of him, and he'd been around for forty years. You know, uh -huh. and the number of people who, when Guardians of the Galaxy came out, they're like these new characters. I'm like, I've been reading these characters for decades. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, I have to say, I you know, I I, I assume it was done on purpose, but I just thought it was brilliant of Marvel Marvel to do the Guardians of the Galaxy because then Marvel can say. Look, these are our C and D level characters. And we've got B and C and A characters you guys haven't even touched yet. And I mean, it just basically said to Hollywood, we're opening up the doors here, guys. Goal mm -hmm. takers. Yep. <laughs> and that's how you get that's how you get razor fish to be uh <laughs> yeah. I, you know, but you know, and and they have they really I haven't seen every Marvel movie, but have they really stumbled badly? No. I mean I think their movies have always been at least entertaining and usually they've been really good, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I didn't see Iron Man three. I didn't see that one. So I don't know how that was. It's, it's not three is not one of the best. I'll put it that way. Yeah. See, that's why. I, and I didn't see the second Thor movie either. You know? That's yeah. also not one of the best. Yeah. yeah. Those but, are probably two of the, like two of the biggest misses, like bottom, bottom five out of, you know, right. 25 or whatever we're up to now. But, but I never feel like I go to a lot of movies. I'm a big movie theater person and I've never been to a Marvel movie where it was like, well, that was a waste of two hours. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. I agree. Totally. Yeah. So, and of course, uh, yeah, I, I haven't been to the movie theater in a long time, but we, we did go see Suicide Squad in the theater and it was well worth it. I enjoyed that tremendously, you know, we will get to that later, but we definitely will absolutely. definitely agree. Um, so before we get uh, too carried away for the listeners, uh, Impossible Jones oh, yes. uh, is the story of a thief who gets powers, is mistaken for a superhero and runs with it. Uh, and while the uh Kickstarter for the, the, the first volume was last year. Uh, Impossible Jones, the character, actually goes back much farther than that. Uh, what is what is you know the origin of this of this character? The, of the idea of the idea of Impossible Jones, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, quite honestly, many years ago, I can't remember exactly when, uh, but I literally woke up one morning and I said, "Oh my God, I know how I, how I would do Plastic Man," and I was thinking, you know, because it's it's right in his origin, he's a thief. 
and he's on a job and he falls into a, gets shot and falls into a vat of acid and wakes up, he has superpowers and he says, I will fight crime. And I said, no, when he woke up and said he saw, saw he had superpowers, he should have said, great, now I can get payback on the sons of bitches who left me behind to die. And then I thought, it, I just played that out in my head. Where would that go? And I thought, oh, well, he's going after criminals. From the outside looking in, he looks like a hero. So people start going, you, you must be a superhero. And like, he's, that wasn't his intention. But he goes, uh, yeah, I'm a superhero. And I thought this was a really good take on the character. And uh, I did, in very vague uh, means, uh, approach Dan DiDio. And he said, nah, we're not interested in a plastic man idea right now. And so, I, you know, to me, I just said, fine. I actually really wanted to keep this one for myself anyways. <laughs> and, um, and so I took that idea. And I also, at the time, uh, was, was actually, quite honestly, missing writing Harley Quinn, which is a book I really enjoyed working on. I enjoyed the energy of the character. I enjoyed the, uh, you know, the fun of the character. And so I said, why don't I just kind of meld those two together? And, um, you know, I came up with Impossible Jones, and that's where she came from. And then David Hahn was looking for work. And I said, you know, I got this idea. I got this idea in my head. What do you think? That's interesting. In fact, that was giving my next question, how you kind of gathered your your creative team. I, you know, I, I was curious, uh, you know, this wasn't even doing uh, research for the project. I just pick up some like back issues uh, at a shop not too long ago, and I've been kind of slowly waking my way, making my way through them. And I came across yours and David's uh, Mass Marvel backups from like 2006 oh. or so. Uh, and so I was kind of cur curious, like where where that all was that the first time that you two had worked together? Might, I think that was the first time we worked together. I mean, I knew David, I've known David like 20 years now. I can't believe that. But uh, I, met, I met him in about, I believe, 2001. Uh, I think he just moved to Portland. I don't know. But there's every Wednesday, there was a bunch of comic guys that got together at a local comic co coffee shop. And it was very close to my house. I mean, I could walk over. And, and it was Wednesday afternoons because that's when Marvel and DC had their editorial meetings. So, the, so everyone knew they weren't going to get calls from their editors. So we would meet at the, at the coffee shop and just have some coffee, maybe, you know, a little snack or whatever, catch up. You know, and it was a way to socialize, really. And um, that's where I met David. And uh, he was working on Private Beach, his creator-owned book at the time. And I just really loved his work. Right from the beginning, there's something about his work that has really spoken to me. I really like the simplicity of it, the cleanness of it. It's very modern. It's, it's uh, you know, I don't know. There's something that really clicks with me. And so... A number of times in our career, you know, when they've shown up, I, you know, people said, you know, an editor said, so who, who would you like to draw this? And I would say, how about David Hahn? And that's how he got involved with the Mass Marvel. Um, I'd been talking to, uh, to Marvel about this idea and they really liked it. And originally it was going to be a miniseries, but then it got knocked down to, to a couple of backups, which is too bad. But, um, but we had a lot of fun working on that. We had some big plans, big plans. What, what kind of plans? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I have to say it's been so long. I can't remember them all. But I mean, the whole idea was the, the supporting cast of that series was the Marvel bullpen, the Marvel offices. And the main character was, was he a writer and an artist? I forget what he was. I think he was the writer of, he was a writer for Marvel. Mm -hmm. And he was going to be writing, you know, geez, it's been so long. I can't remember this. But he was going to be writing the comic version of, his hero, the masked Marvel, because Marvel was doing, you know, Marvel had a Spider-Man comic when Spider-Man was in the real universe. They had a Fantastic Four comic when, you know, you know, Marvel was publishing comic versions of real superheroes. So mm -hmm. 
And, um, you know, we, we, we like the idea of him, you know, fictionalizing his own adventures to put in the comics. We like the idea of having the, uh, the Marvel bullpen as, as the supporting cast, because they've been minor supporting players in Marvel comics for decades, you know, Stan Stan and Jack have appeared, you know, um, Bendis did a Marvel team up issue with the Marvel, uh, you know, bullpen editorial staff. Uh, they've, they've always kind of been there. And I thought, and I've always really enjoyed those stories. And so I thought, let's do a story. And, um, and, and we had ideas about, um, how, how, there was, um, and I can't remember the, all the details to this, but there was like a secret that Marvel was keeping. And I know the name of the secret was Excelsior, you know, and, and, and this was a secret that went back to Stan Lee's t- time and there was an alternate world and blah, blah, blah. I can't remember everything, but it was big. We had big plans for this and we got two backups. So. Uh, so what did you learn from the first Kickstarter from Possible Jones that you've, used moving forward with other Kickstarters? I mean, the very first Impossible Jones Kickstarter failed. I, I canceled it. There was one, uh, and that was when David and I, uh, you know, we had, I had done a Kickstarter with Tom Grummet for Section Zero, and, and it took forever to fulfill, and, and it really bothered me. And um, so I thought, well, we'll do, f-. but of course the thing is, I, I don't have a lot of money in the bank. I'm not a millionaire, and it takes money to, you know, pay your bills while you're working on a comic book, you know, and it, and David has to pay his bills and the colorist has to pay his bills. And so you got to have money to pay these people and you got to pay them enough that they can actually work on your project and give you your best, give them, give you your, their best work. And so I did have enough money that David and I were able to put together the first issue of Impossible Jones, which actually now is Scout's first issue of Impossible Jones. But that's what we were originally going to was uh, kickstart was just that single issue because it was done. I figured we'll raise the money for this and we can get it in people's hands really quickly. And the money we raise is actually going to pay us to do issue two. And we'd be ahead of the curve, which is really where I wanted to be. Um, but Impossible Jones was an unknown quantity. And I, I have really learned the hard way. You know, I know why they do sequels to popular movies now, because being an unknown quantity is a really hard sell. People were not as interested in, and they were not as excited about as Impossible Jones as I was. Um, And people um, didn't seem to trust my word that it would be really enjoyable. And um, it just, I could tell very quickly, we were not going to make make our goal. And uh, so I I think it was a week into the campaign, I canceled it. Uh, I wasn't gonna spend a month of my life working on something that wasn't going to be able to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, we regrouped a little bit and I said, well, we can do the section zero route. We can do it as a graphic novel. We won't have it done when we kickstart it. But I mean, people are more willing to pay, you know, 25 or 30 bucks for a hardcover book that's hundred pages long, as opposed to 10 or maybe even $15 for what is quote unquote a comic book. Let's face it. That's an expensive comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that. So that's what we did with, you know, that's what we did. We retooled things and came back with the Impossible Jones graphic novel, Grin and Gritty. And that did fund and it did take us a long time to finish, longer than I expected. Um, but we did get in people's hands. And um, at, at, that hand, at that point, David and I planned to do a series of graphic novels. Okay, people will buy this as a graphic novel. Let's keep doing it as a graphic novel. And um, we started working on it 
and we had an idea we really liked and there was something bothering me in the back of my head. There was just something bothering me. And um, then I got a royalty check from DC. I got a royalty check for King Shark, believe it or not. <laughs> and this was like two years ago. And um, all of a sudden I had extra money in the bank. And I said to David, I said, you know, and I said, I really would like to do some smaller stories to expand the world because it felt like we were going from Impossible Jones, the movie number one to Impossible Jones, the movie number two. And, you know, movies do that all the time. Mm-hmm. But being from comic books and, and the thing that I always miss in these big movies is it's always big. It's always big. It's always big. And I said, I really like those little moments, the moments between, you know, when Galactus strikes and, you know, the Inhumans story here, there's, there's a little story in the middle. And those, those little stories really humanize the characters. And, and uh, I really wanted to do some of those. And so I said, I got some money in the bank so we can, you know, we can, we can go back to our original plan. We don't have to raise as much money. And uh, that's what we did. We did impossible. Uh, we decided to do four team up books and that would focus on impossible Jones and one of her, one of the other heroes or characters in her universe in each issue. And, uh, and it would give us time to explore her personal life and how she re- interacts with the police. And, um, and I was very happy, quite honestly, with how uh, the Imp and Holly book came out. Um, and now we're working on the second one, Impossible Jones and Captain Lightning. And I'm, I just really, I guess because of my, my training is in the monthly comic field, this feels much more like a monthly comic, even though it's only twice or three times a year. And um, I, I enjoy that pacing. It's something I'm very comfortable with. Um, even And I would say, you know, a monthly comic book. Uh, Imp Holly was 30 pages long. So it's much longer than your regular comic. Mm-hmm. And this next one is 34 pages long. So, um, you, know, I, you know, when I say it's a comic book, it's, it's a big comic book. Um, and then there's the first one had a six page backup too, which I'm hoping through stretch goals, we can get on the second one too. So, I mean, you're talking about at the end, maybe a 40 page comic that you're getting. Um, so it's more than just, you know, an, an issue of X-Men, it's, you know, size wise. Do you have like a rough idea of what you want to do with, sort of subsequent, uh, I, I guess, uh, 2C and 2D, uh, as it were? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, from the beginning, I wanted to do, uh, although I'll say this, I know what I want to do, and what I wanted to do has changed. Okay, okay. So what I wanted to do is four standalone uh, team-ups. First one was always going to be Imp and Holly Days, because I wanted to explore their friendship. Mm-hmm. Second one was always going to be Imp and Captain Lightning, because I created Captain Lightning in second grade, and he holds a special place in my heart. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I just wanted to give him a chance to shine. And then the third issue was always going to be uh, Imp 2C will be Impossible Jones and Polecat, another character I created in second grade. Um, and uh, I, I just always have a lot of fun when I write him. And um, I, I always say he's, his superpower is that everyone likes him. <laughs> that's, that's his, he's just this really likable guy. And even Impossible Jones, she, she can't help herself. She really likes this guy. And um, once again, I, I really, and you know, I, I don't want to say too much about that. Anyways, yeah. but then the fourth book, the fourth book, uh, Impossible, you know, 2D was going to introduce a new character, a character I've wanted to do for a very long time. I wanted to do a story 
about a, a character who's a doctor who treats superpowered characters. So she knows how to treat uh, someone, you know, who's a fire elemental. She knows how to conduct surgery on someone who has rock-like skin or steel skin. You know, this is what her training is. Her training is to deal with superpowered uh, wounds. And, you know, and she does not, you know, Hippocratic Oath, it doesn't matter if you're Dr. Doom or if you're Reed Richards, if you're hurt, she takes care of you, you know? And uh, I've always thought that was a really interesting idea that I haven't seen done at least a lot. So I, I did have in the back of my mind, since we were going to do, and this character is called Doc Victory. And Doc Victory, and, and in the Impossible Jones uh, graphic novel, it is mentioned when one of the characters is hurt that he's being taken to uh, the shock center. And the shock center is, is run by Doc Victory. And uh, shock stands for Superhuman Optimal Care Center. So it's actually S-H-O-C-C, but they say shock, okay? And, you know, anyways, and, and they have like flying ambulances and the people who drive it are shock jocks and stuff like that. Anyways, um, so anyways, Doc Victory runs the shock center. And um, I, so I thought, well, the Polecat story is gonna end then with Impossible Jones getting hurt so that we start the next one and she's hurt and she's in this care center and that, that's where we get our story. So, um, so I, the other, uh, I'm probably explaining too much here. So the other thing I wanted to do was I wanted to bring in a character who is uh, Polcat's long un, unrequited love interest, who's now kind of a, uh, the Captain America sort of character of this world. She's, um, she's, she's got a name I can't use. I, I didn't realize DC had this name. I was gonna call her US Angel. And uh, actually it's part of the uh, Alan Moore ABC line. Ah, okay. first American and his sidekick was U.S. Angel. I only learned this a few weeks ago. So, and I know that DC, um, I, you know, yeah, I'm sure I could call them up and they would say, yeah, you can use the name. Go ahead, Carl. We like you. <laughs> so I got to come up with another name. But, um, but she, you know, she and him, they grew up together. They, you know, but then she got like real big and, you know, he's just like this guy with a stick. And so, you know, that, I, I really want to explore that relationship. So I wanted to bring her in. And so I was thinking, well, you know, she's like Captain America to bring her in. They've got to have a pretty big menace. And I thought, well, a pretty big menace. That's okay. Cause that's, that can hurt him. That's why how imp gets hurt. And um, then I'm doing something in the Captain Lightning standalone where there's a, there's a, like a meteorite that can give powers to people and stuff. And Captain Lightning is very worried. It's going to fall into the wrong hands. And at the end of the story, it, it was going to fall into the wrong hands. It was going to fall into the hands of the person who was going to be in the next graphic novel. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was going to set up our villain for the next graphic novel. And then I thought, well, what if instead it falls into the hands of the person that is this big menace that they have to call in whoever we rename U.S. Angel to be. And, and, and I said, yeah, that would be kind of cool because it ties those together. And, and so all of a sudden all these standalone books are actually tied together. Is what it, this is a really long way of me saying all four of these standalone books when you get done there's actually an arc to them um that will tie in even to the impali book i really don't want to give away too much more but there's things put in place in the impali book that will actually pay off in the fourth of the team so i tried to do these little standalone stories but they they like stories do they they took on a life of their own and the characters build built on each other and played off each other and all of a sudden there's this this big climax that I really was not planning at all. That's great. Um, 
I was going to touch on, I was going to ask about this later, but you, you, you already mentioned it. So I, I, I want to bring it up now. So you, you created Captain Lightning, the concepts of Captain Lightning and Polecat in the second grade. And you now, was this like, you always had them in your mind or like you stumbled upon a notebook, like, I don't know, 20, 25 years later and were like, oh shoot, I can use this. I always remembered those characters because as, as a kid, I really liked them. I mean, uh, you know, Captain Lightning, I, you know, I had a sketchbook that I would line off and draw panels on and draw, you know, I would actually draw comic books in these sketchbooks. And what I did was I, I would pick a, uh, an idea and they were really bad ideas usually. And I would do, you know, I would decide, okay, this, you know, I can't even remember all of them. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say, okay, this is going to be, I know I did one called Ghost Hunters and they were about, you know, it was an X-Files sort of story. And I would decide, okay, ghost hunter stories are eight pages a, a, a piece. And I do an eight page ghost hunter story. And then I do like a two page Captain Lightning story to break it up. Then another eight page. And I do that for half a sketchbook. And the other half of the sketchbook, I change the ghost hunters to something else. And sometimes I would decide, no, nah, eight pages was too, I'm going to try 10 pages now, see if I can do a 10 page story. But at the end of the 10 page story, I'd still do a two page Captain Lightning story. I had, you know, unfortunately these sketchbooks have been thrown out long ago. It's, I, wish, I wish I could see them myself. But, um, but over all the years, I would have two different features in each sketchbook. But Captain Lightning always was the two page story that broke up all of those story, all, all those other characters. So I was, I was always really, um, you know, invested in the character. I was always very invested in the character. And so I, it's not like I ever really forgot him. Um, mm -hmm. I just never really thought there was a place for him. And then I was putting together the, the Impossible Jones universe. And I said, you know, I need, I need a straight shooter. I need like, you know, the guy who, you know, when he walks in the room, everyone listens to what he's saying. And, uh, you know, as I describe him, he's, he's the superhero sheriff of the town, you know, and, uh, and I thought, you know, Captain Lightning, why not? Let's bring in Captain Lightning. And, um, you know, and, and in very similar ways, I, I just, you know, I did not do as much as a child with Polecat as that. But I do remember re really enjoying drawing him. And probably the reason it stuck in my mind was when I hit that on the name when I was a kid, Polecat, he's a cat with a pole. And, and why hasn't anyone thought of that? And, you know, I mean, you know, it's like one of, and, and it's so loud. And, um, and it wasn't until later that I realized at least where I grew up, polecat is slang for skunk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's why no one's named a character polecat. Um, but, you know, so when I thought of Captain Lightning, you know, my mind was thinking of those old characters and I did remember polecat and I really enjoyed him. And I liked the, the idea of a, of a more daredevil level character as far as, as, far as powers go and stuff. And so I said, yeah, what, what, what if he's a city boy and he didn't realize what polecat meant either. And he gave himself as this name like me, he thought he was really clever. And by the time he learned some of the connotations of his name, it, it's too late. He's stuck with it. And <laughs> so, and so anyways, that's, that's, that's how those guys came in, into being, yeah. And I have to say another, I will say a weird part about this is I remember once talking to Eric Larson and Eric Larson was talking about some of the characters in Savage Dragon. And he goes, I created these guys when I was 10 years old and, and they got stupid names, but you just tell people you created them when you were 10 years old and they accept it. <laughs> and, I, and I remember him saying that. And, and so I was like, going, Captain Lightning, Polecat, not the best names, but hey, I was 10 years old when I created them. You know, if it works for Eric, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> um, 
you know, I, one of the, the fascinating things there is like from from a young age, you were already like working with like story structure and pacing. You're like, all right, I'm going to do eight pages of this and then two pages of Captain Lightning and, you know, another eight pages of this and, and, and sort of breaking it down that way. Um, what, were, what were you what were you reading at that time? Do you remember? I mean, I was reading everything at that time. I mean, that was the time when I was buying every Marvel and every DC book. Um, I, I, if the ghost books were still coming out, I wasn't buying those. Um, but I mean, I was, I was buying the, the, the Kubert, uh, Sergeant rocks and stuff like that. I thought those were really fascinating. Um, I was never really big into those. I was much more into the superhero stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Mostly Marvel and DC at that point. I mean, when Charlton had some interesting stuff, I'd buy Charlton too. I was buying everything. I was buying everything. So you've had quite a few Kickstarters under your belt at this point uh, between Imp and, and Section Zero and other stuff. Um, do you feel like you've mastered the art? No. Or is there... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no. That, that's, the thing about Kickstarter is we're, we're all making it up as we go along. I mean, no one has mastered it. And quite honestly, um, what works for me and the people who seem to like my work, it, it doesn't work for Ron Randall. And what works for Ron Randall doesn't work for me. And what works for us doesn't work for Jeff Parker, who's, who's got a, a really great Kickstarter up right now, by the way. Um, uh, you know, I, it, it, you know, people are, are strange and mysterious and, and finding ways to connect to them is, um, you know, you, you try something and it works and then you try it again and it doesn't work. And you try some, you know, and then you try something else. A lot of times it's, you just throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, that's part of the excitement of Kickstarters is trying to figure out a way to connect to those people. I mean, one of the things I learned on the very first Kickstarter, the Section Zero Kickstarter, is, is it's so, so, so much like uh, an election. You're, run, you're running, you're like a politi political campaign. You are running a campaign to get elected. You're, get, you're being elected means getting your book enough money to print your book, but you're doing the same thing. You're trying to find ways to, you know, make public appearances, and, you know, have this person endorse you and, um, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's so much like a political campaign. It's a really amazing, like a political campaign. And I found that if you make very specific appeals, you know, like they say in politics, people like to ask to have their, you know, ask them to give you your vote. Please give me your vote. People like that. And that works on Kickstarters too, is if I say we're at 666 backers, who's going to be 667 and get us off this number? People respond to that. Maybe not this time. See, I, I'll say it. And this time I'm wrong. But many, many times, if I, if I said, you know, we're $10 away from $7,000, who will put us past 7000 Nine times out of 10, people respond right away. Someone puts you over that mark. You know, people like people like to be asked to help out. They really do, just like in politics. So, so it's like a, a constant, maybe not constant, but like you regularly need that sort of call to action. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, any, and any sort of like stat that you can throw in there, uh, helps feed the next the next one the next ask right. yeah exactly yeah i mean and you got to try to figure out ways to um catch people's attention visually um maybe you know maybe someone responds really well to bad puns and you know you try some bad <laughs> puns i'm very good at bad puns um 
but uh, you know, and some people respond more to you know a more you know quiet approach, you know, and you try a lot of different things. Just just like a politician will be, you know, really bombastic about something and then really quiet about something. You know, he's trying. Okay, this is for the uh, the angry voter, and this is for the suburban mom who likes it, you know, who doesn't like her politics to be angry. You know, it it is. It's a lot like that. You know, you try to appeal to as many people as possible. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I mean, Impossible Jones, my, my Kickstarter has almost always come in at about a thousand backers, which is great. Believe me, it, it pays my bills. I'm very happy. Um, but that's a thousand people in the whole world who have seen the first Impossible Jones book. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of people. You know what I mean? And that's that's where someone like Scout can come in and Scout can put Impossible Jones into a comic shock. Um, because I think there's more than a thousand people out there that will like impossible jokes. So, uh, that's, that's, that's a good accidental segue. Uh, how did the publishing alliance with Scout come about? Um, well, I mean, through Kickstarters, I'd gotten to know Charlie Stickney, who does the really amazing, uh, comic book, White Ash. (laughs) He writes that. Um, with Connor Hughes, no relation to Adam Hughes drawing it. Um, and, uh, and Connor is also an amazing artist. I love his work. But um, I mean, White Ash was a book who, whose reputation preceded it. I was just hearing from people, White Ash, what a great comic, what a great comic. And then like, oh, here's the new White Ash comic being kickstarted. And I supported it. I got to know Charlie. It's a great comic. And Charlie became very involved with Scout. And I trust Charlie. I trust his judgment. I think he's got a really level head on his shoulders. He's a real smart guy. And uh, really, it came down to Charlie said, you know, I think Scout, Scout's a good place to go if you're looking, Carl. And I said, yeah, I'm looking. And uh, yeah, so, so, you know, Charlie was really the deciding factor there. You know, if Charlie had not been involved with Scout, I probably would not have pursued that. So, uh, you know, on top of all this, the, the first volume of Impossible Jones uh, was just nominated for a Ringo Award. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. We'll see how yeah. it goes. I'm very excited. It would be really nice. Um, it was it was nominated for, uh, I believe, they, the way they phrase it, oddly enough, is what? Best Presentation in Design. Yep, that's what which I got. Means, <laughs> yep. which, which means, I guess, the book looks nice. You know, but um, but yeah, I uh, I will say I'm very proud of the design work on Impossible Jones, and, and I'm sorry to say the designer is me. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but um, I don't know. Uh, when I got done with it, I thought I, I think this book looks pretty good, and I mean, I'll, I'll admit I thought that when I finished the Section Zero book, but I look at the Section Zero book now and I go, eh, you know, a little. I wasn't I wasn't quite as good as you thought it was, Carl. Um, but I think I learned. I think just like. Anything you do, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I think the Impossible Jones graphic novel, uh, there's a, a lot of things that came together design-wise really well on it. And I was very honored that uh, some people noticed and I got nominated. So we'll see what happens uh, end of this month, end of October at That's the right. Ringo Awards at the Baltimore Com- Comic Con. So, and I, and I will be there. I'm gonna be at the Baltimore Comic Con. That'll be my first post-pandemic show. That's great. So uh, you mentioned in the, uh, the back matter for the, for the first volume that you wrote part one full script and then switched to uh, plot dialogue, yeah. you know, Marvel style. Uh, had you written that way in the past? Well, I mean, most of the stuff I did on Superman and Superboy, uh, when Mike Carlin was the editor on Superman, 
And, and then when Tom and I went off and did Superboy, almost all of that was plot dialogue. Because that's how, how Mark, that's how, that's how Mike ran the Superman books, probably because he came from Marvel, but also because of logistically, he had to have a new Superman book in the pipeline every single week. Mm-hmm. And if you were waiting a whole week to get a full script from someone, I, I think that would be cutting things pretty tight. I mean, most professional writers can knock out a plot in a day or two. Even, even I, as a newbie at the time, even it would only take maybe, maybe half a week to get a plot into him, which gave him time to edit it, make sure it was presentable to the rest of the team so the next person could get their plot in. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, I, I was trained on plot dialogue working for Mike, Mike Carlin. And um, it was later that, uh, you know, that, that things in comics seemed to start shifting so that by the time I was working on like Harley Quinn, that was that was pretty much full script. Um, and, and it seems like mostly people are writing full script nowadays. I don't know. Maybe in Marvel, it's still plot dialogue. I, I see a lot more people writing full script than they used to. Um, and so, I mean, I slid that way with the industry. And when, when we started Impossible Jones, I handed David a full script. And with the understanding that David could say, this scene here, I don't think this really works for me. And I respect David's opinion on those. And he's, he has helped uh, save me from looking like a fool many times. And, um, but then with the second part, I was getting more used to working with David. And I also wanted to um, get things moving a little quicker. Cause like I said, it takes a while to do a full script. And so I gave him a plot and it turned out to be the best thing we'd done. I mean, uh, it, the character was really coming alive more. And uh, I, I, I like being able to play off his art with my, uh, with my dialogue where, you know, maybe my original idea was this person was being kind of smarmy, but I see David's art and I go, oh, he's, he's really not smarmy. He's more sly, you know, and that, that modifies the dialogue, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I mean, working with David Platt dialogue was, was a, a real step forward in our relationship. It really added a lot to the book. You've mentioned it here, but you've written extensively for the big two, as well as Section Zero and other indies. But with Impossible Jones, you're doing some serious, heavy lifting world universe building. What goes into developing an entire superhero universe to make it feel like something fresh, not just Marvel light, say? Now, yeah, I think that's a great question, and I'm not sure I got a good answer for it, quite honestly. Uh, a lot of what I do is by instinct. And, you know, I mean, you, you get an idea in your head, and um, and you either stick with it, or you stick with it until you say, oh, that was a bad idea, you know. Um, but, I mean, for instance, I knew going in, I wanted a city, uh, West Coast City. I wanted a West Coast City. And I wanted a West Coast City that only had, like, three or four heroes. And uh, so there's not like Marvel or DC where, you know, you know, especially Marvel's, you know, Manhattan, where there's dozens and dozens of heroes. No, I wanted a, a city where very small number of heroes and an endless number of villains. I don't care how many villains we throw in the city, but a very limited number of heroes. Um, and, and so, I mean, I th- think that's, that was where we began. And uh, we, we built out from that. And um, one of the heroes... And I would say it's a hero who unfortunately has gotten short shrift uh, is a character called Persephone. And Persephone, the idea of Persephone is every year the city holds a pageant and they elect, uh, they, they vote in a new Persephone. And it's this young woman, 
Stephanie for a year and she represents the city and she does have powers and the powers, you know, come with a pendant. So the pendant is passed from Persephone to Persephone. And I really love this idea a lot. And I like the, uh, the implications of, you know, there's dozens of ex-Persephones out there and some of them, some of them went on to, you know, they parlayed this into, you know, being actors in Hollywood. The mayor of New Hope City right now is an ex-Persephone. Holly Days was an ex-Persephone. Um, so these, these people had this common experience that took them in all sorts of different directions. And I think that's really interesting. Some of them are housewives in the suburbs, you know. Um, some of them, unfortunately, committed suicide. I, you know, there's, there's good parts, bad parts. But anyways, Persephone has never had, there's never been the space to explore her in the Impossible Jones books yet. And that's been very frustrating to me because uh, I think there's a lot of good, interesting things there. But thinking about Persephone, I started thinking about the history of the pageant. And when you start thinking about the history of the pageant, then you start thinking about the history of the city. And so, in fact, Jones' Captain Lightning book, uh, there's, a, there's a two page um, short history of New Hope City where we outline why the city was formed, what happened around the turn of the century. It was the steampunk capital. Then there was a uh, earthquake, destroyed most things. It became the center of crime for a while. And then during World War II kind of climbs out of it. Um, but that really, def you know, went, Really, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is one thing leads to another, you know, and all of a sudden we have this whole world, you know, and a lot of it is, like I said, instinct. You go, this piece fits well with this piece. This piece doesn't fit here. You know, it, it's really kind of instinctive. Very, very cool. Um, speaking of uh, some of those other characters, the one we haven't touched on, who's sort of my favorite amongst these other characters is even Steven oh. Vigilante, who's obsessed with maintaining balance between good and evil and pretty much everything else. Yep. He, he has a visual <laughs> that reads like those classic trench coat heroes, Mr. Mm -hmm. A, Rorschach, and of course, The Question. Uh, what made that the archetype you wanted to play with? Well, I mean, I love that archetype, first of all, yes. Um, you know, the, and there's something so distinct about that look, which, you know, you, you have to give credit to Ditko. He came up with that look as the, well, no, I mean, if you really go back to it, Will Eisner came up with that look for the spirit, but Ditko took it, um, I think, you know, getting rid of the face and, um, there, there's something about that look that is so Ditko and, um, I've always loved that look. I've always loved that, that guy in a suit fighting crime look. And um, the, the name, you know, I have to say the name came first. I said, even Stephen, well, what sort of character would that be, you know? And um, when, it, when I came up with the idea that he would insist on always fighting evil on, on the same level, that it had to be a fair fight, that he believed in the core of his being, that good will always triumph over evil in a fair fight, I, I just like said, wow, that works. That's that, and what I loved about that was, you know, the thing I I want to stress about even Stephen is, is he's basically omnipotent. He he, if Galactus comes down, he'll fight Galactus on Galactus's level. If if he considers Galactus evil, I guess that's the next question. <laughs> um, but but if he's stopping a guy with a knife, all he does is you know form a knife. Um, he always will face his foe on an equal footing. 
And so he's a character who's not defined by his power. He's a character who's defined by his philosophy. And to me, that's really interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, thinking about uh, the Persephone uh, stuff that you were just talking about and how you wanted to kind of work that into the world more. I, you know, I do like the idea that there's this sort of background continuity that we as the reader are not like privy to yet that, mm-hmm. you know, we know you're going to get there eventually, but in the meantime, it's like, it, you know, every time you see like the, the poster, for example, it's like, yeah, that's going to be something at some point, <laughs> you know, yeah. build, sort of building that, that anticipation for uh, plot lines, you know, the long game. Right. Exactly. And, and I would say, you know, David and I are doing the next graphic novel and Persephone is in it. I mean, we really were going to focus on and dis- define the relationship between Impossible Jones and Persephone. Um, so we will get there. Um, but I remember, uh, you know, talking to Kurt Busick at one point, and I don't have any idea what we we're talking about, but Kurt said something, you know, well, you know, what you've done here, this is a promise to the reader. This is a promise that you've, you've promised to pay off at some point. And, and you're right. That's what this is. You know, these are promises we're making to the reader. When, when we mention Persephone, we're getting, we're going to get to her. We know how she fits into the picture. Um, there's a, uh, you know, quite honestly in the graphic novel, uh, one scene takes place at an old gymnasium called Copper's Gymnasium. And Copper is, is a hero from the 1940s. I know this, David knows this. And in the uh, next Impossible, in, well, Impossible Jones Holly, in the Impossible Jones Holly days, you learn a little more about Copper, the character, who happens to be, yes, named after my dog. Yes. Um, so, but I, I mean, we, like I said, we do have a tapestry here and we do, and it is like, you know, you know, you, you can have a story set in New York City and mention, you know, Central Park and you don't have to go into the history of Central Park and you don't even have to know where it is, but you know, from context, it's it's an important park. It's a place people go to relax. I mean, and it does fill out the context of, of the city. You know what I mean? And uh, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do with Impossible Jones, um, you know, uh, where little references like to Persephone, like to Copper. Uh, we do mention Eureka Park at one point. Um, you know, we're hoping to build out, you know, it, to give the feeling that all of that stuff is is there. You just haven't seen it yet, you know? So uh, moving into another bit of your history, you co-created one of DC's more unusual breakout stars. King Shark. King Shark. He's been a huge hit after appearing in the Suicide Squad. Uh, what was it like seeing King Shark up on the big screen, voiced by Sylvester Stallone? Pointing to his hand. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. And, uh, bird. I, I mean, it was a thrill. I mean, you know, quite honestly, uh, at, at this point, um, my biggest contribution to popular culture, culture is King Shark. And if you had told me that when I created him back in Superboy, well, I guess he first appeared in Superboy 8, but he was a big starring role in Superboy 9. Mm-hmm. I, I would have laughed at you. I mean, King Shark, really? Like people will like have t-shirts with him? No, you know, but here we are. Here we are. This is the world we live in. Um, this, this weird alternate re- reality where King Shark is a breakout star. And uh, I, I personally loved him in Suicide Squad, you know? Uh, and I know... Um, you know, there are many other people who have taken him 
and, and take him to the, so he could get to this point. I mean, I, I specifically think of what Gail Simone has done with him, where, you know, King Shark is a shark. And um, she really gave, you know, I mean, he was, she's right, King Shark is a shark. And when I did him, he was a shark. I mean, really, he didn't care for much more than just chomping on people. Um, so the idea that he's been fleshed out by people like Gail and by people like James Gunn, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed personally and astounded, astounded and impressed. And I'm very happy. I mean, I like the character. He's a fun character. Um, so, and I guess he's going to have a comic at DC now and I, it's really weird, <laughs> but you never, you never can tell, you know, you can, you can plan these things. I mean, quite honestly, you, you know, when I did the Impossible Jones book, the, the first graphic novel, never in my wildest dreams did I think even Steven would become a fan favorite. But believe me, when people mentioned favorite characters in that book, they always mentioned even Steven. Always. I was astounded how regularly people said they really liked that character. So, you, you know, you, you just put your best foot forward and um, you just don't know what's going to happen. You just don't know. It's, it's amazing, like, and, and Matt, please correct me if I'm wrong here. You know, we've seen King Shark adapted, I think at least three times across media now between the CW shows right. where there he's kind of mostly, you know, CGI Shark Man, you know, and then the Harley Quinn animated series where he's voiced by Ron Funches and he wears like hooded sweaters <coughs> and he's kind of like the team accountant, I think. Uh, and now, and now the Suicide Squad and each one is like, very very different there's there's a lot of ways to to tell stories with this with that character which is probably part of what you know makes him uh so adaptable but uh you know yeah, uh, yeah, fascinating so. to see yeah i mean i think adaptability is is important to the longevity of any character you know i actually think part of the genius of spider-man is that he can be creepy because he's a spider but stanley established he's really funny too so you can do him funny, you can do him creepy, you can do, and and both fit the character. That's part of the genius of Spider-Man. Now, uh, how has your relationship been with DC when it comes to characters that you've created being adapted? Well, I mean, I don't know what you mean. I have no relationship with them when it comes to them being adapted. They don't ever talk to me about it. But I understand that that's that's how the game is played. I mean, I you know that was all done work for hire, and I understood that. Um, I'm you know I. I can't say I'm um, upset with the way any of these characters have been treated. I, said, I mean, I didn't create Hawk. I wasn't really excited when they killed him off, but he got better, you know? So, um, you know, you do become emotionally invested in these characters, but they're, they're not yours, you know? So sure. you know, DC is, you know, I, I can't complain. DC, I will say in my limited experience, uh, because really King Shark is the first real characters that's gotten any play outside the comic books but uh but my experience there is dc has been very good to me financially with the use of king shark much better uh you know i can't say i've got a lot of uh things at marvel that have been used but from what i've heard you know marvel's a, a little stingier with their money when it comes to that sort of thing uh so I, I have no complaints quite honestly with the way dc has treated me it's interesting that you say King Shark is the first character to you that's gotten a lot of play outside of comics because you also co-created Superboy, Connor Connell, who's been on Smallville and Titans and the Young Justice animated series and popped up in a couple of video games. And granted, it's never been 
the uh, movie is, you know, big as King Shark, but he's still out there. Yeah. Uh, when you were involved in Death and Return of Superman, which became one of these sort of big epic pieces of DC history, <laughs> do you have any idea that Superboy would take on that life of his own? Oh, no, no, not, never. No. And I, I mean, and none of us knew at the time it was that that story was going to be that that story. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it, I don't know. It was, it was, an, it was an amazing, uh, astounding time to have some small role in. But I mean, yeah, Superboy was just, he was going to be a fun character to write. And uh, I guess on some level that that enjoyment uh, came through in the characters and, and fans reacted to it. And, you know, it, a lot of it depends on being teamed with the right artist. And Tom, his, his style is full of life. And St- Tom has a lot of, you know, energy and fun to the way he draws. So he was perfect for Superboy. I mean, if we had ended up doing, you know, man, you know, John Henry Irons, if for some reason we did that, um, I, I, I don't think it would have worked as well. You know what I mean? I mean, it was the perfect combination of me, my, my sensibilities and Tom's with the character. And so a lot of this comes down to right place at the right time. That's what that was. You know, uh, speaking holistically, your, your CV in comics is, is very broad, very, very diverse from, from Fantastic Four to the DC work that we just talked about to Section Zero and Impossible Jones. Are there comics you've done that you get asked about more than others? And are there comics where you feel like you've said everything you've ever wanted to say on the subject? Well, I mean, I don't know. I asked more about than any others. I don't know about that. Uh, probably, yeah, I mean, just because of the importance of it, the Superman stuff all, you know, almost always comes up. Superman, Superboy. Mm-hmm. Um, c- considering it's all part of the death of and, and uh, reign of the Superman and stuff like that. So that probably comes up the most. Um, I think at this point, you know, I've had a lot of fun playing in the Marvel and DC sandboxes, um, but there's just very little I oh, I wish I could go back and do this um, uh, because I, I've had my chance and quite honestly, I'm having an awful lot of fun with Impossible Jones and I can see doing that for a long time. And if not Impossible Jones, um, Tom and I are still working away on another Section Zero story. I've got other characters that I could work on. I'm, I'm enjoying doing creator-owned right now quite a bit. And I will admit, uh, having kids, I got two young kids, um, and the idea of legacy has become much more important to me than it used to be. And the idea that, uh, as I said before, uh, I'm probably not going to get him rich, rich off of Impossible Jones, but maybe my kids will. And that's that's a huge motivating factor, let me tell you. Um, now, if I get a chance to write Fantastic Four, I, I'd do that in a heartbeat. But other than that, there's very few things on my bucket list that's, that's at Marvel or DC anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've been... Uh, a writer you've been an art you've worked as an artist an inker uh you a designer <laughs> as we've talked about uh you know maybe even other parts in the chain that I, I i didn't just list what is a way that that you know having worked worn all those hats influences how you think about projects and also how you interact with your collaborators hmm hmm i don't know uh it i don't know if it does it affect how I think about things? I guess it does. It must. But I, I don't know how consciously it affects how I think about them. Um, I mean, look at, I mean, Impossible Jones as a comic book failed. And the first chance I got, we went back to Impossible Jones as a comic book. So obviously, I learned nothing from that experience. Um, 
but uh, I mean, how it influences how I work with collab, you know, people I work with, with artists and collaborators. Uh, I, I really try to tailor the way I, I work with an artist to that artist, you know. So, um, you know, so I don't know if, you know, things I learned, uh, you know, as, as a designer or whatever, uh, influence the way I work, work with David or with Tom Grummet, you know, two people I worked a lot with. I, I just, I try to learn what their strengths are, what they like to do, what they don't like to do, and, you know, and tailor stories that make them look good. Because if I can make them look good, they're going to make me look good. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So uh, we did get a couple Twitter questions in from uh, podcast superfan Asimov Fangirl, uh, who starts off by congratulating you for uh, uh, Impossible uh, reaching its funding goal, uh, its initial funding goal. Uh, she, so she asks, uh, after so many years illustrating and telling stories, what are the scenes or things that you enjoy drawing when you're, when, you know, when you're drawing and, and what are the ones that are less delightful to do? Well, crowd scenes are always awful. Crowd scenes are awful to draw. <laughs> I would say I was always really impressed with John Burns crowd scenes because everyone was so distinctive. And, and, you know, it was always inking John was always a joy, but inking his crowd scenes was always a joy because you could tell every character had a story. Every character was distinctive. It was not generic face A, generic face B. He really, I was very impressed by his crowd scenes. I hate crowd scenes if I'm drawing them myself, you know? Um, so, so, and what do I enjoy drawing? Um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, if you get that expression just right, I mean, that, that's the best thing. That expression, whatever you're going for, if you can get that exactly right, I think to me, and expression sometimes means, you know, body language and stuff like that. And, and sometimes the lighting of the scene, when all that can come together, that's great. When, when all of, that's what I like, when all the pieces come together, that's what I like. That's great. And then uh, her second question is a, is a tried and true uh, chestnut. Uh, if you could get a superpower, what would you choose? Yeah, uh, I'd probably go for flight. Flight. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. flying. I mean, I, I had a very vivid dream when I was young that I had these um, Native American wings. You could like pull feather wings, you'd pull on your arms. And mm. when I flapped them, I could fly. And, and I have distinct memories of flying up above my house and looking down and it was in vivid color. And, uh, and, and I even had that kind of weird sense of vertigo you get when you're up high and stuff, but I wasn't scared. It was just like, Oh, I'm, I'm up really high, you know, but that was a very vivid dream. And, and if I could ever experience that in real life, sure. I'd do that in a heartbeat. Excellent. So uh, as, as part of the current Kickstarter, some of the tiers include uh, pieces of original art, uh, including uh, some of your inks over the late Michael Ringo uh, mm -hmm. from your Fantastic Four uh, work. Do you have a lot of original art saved from over the years? Are there, are there pieces that you have that you're just never going to part with? No, never is a big word, but there's, there are pieces that will be very hard for me to part with. Yeah. Okay. I mean... Um, <laughs> I've got, you know, certain Ringo pages stashed away that, um, you know, if, you know, if we were going to lose the house, yeah, I would sell them. But mm -hmm. short of that, no, they're, they're not leaving my hands. You know, same with some Tom Grummet pages. Um, I, I almost, you know, and, you know, I have no plans of getting rid of any Impossible Jones pages. We give out some as rewards. Mm -hmm. If, you know, if people appear in the book, they get the page of the art where they appear. 
Um, but generally speaking, the creator-owned stuff, I, I have no intention of letting leave my hands uh, because I'm just too too deeply invested in it. It's, it's much easier for me to let go of a page of Spider-Man or Fantastic Four as much as I love those characters because mm-hmm. that, you know, that was, a, that was a fun gig, but it was a gig and I've, you know, I, I moved on to my next gig. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've got, you know, five, is it five pages? Uh, Suicide Squad uh, pages that uh, Luke McDonald penciled and it's the sequence where Deadshot, it, you may not remember this, but there was a scene in an issue of Suicide Squad where there was a senator who was blackmailing the squad and Deadshot goes and he shoots the senator and he shoots that senator right in the center of his head. And I always thought that was a most brilliant comic story I'd ever seen because in that single moment, Deadshot was the hero and the villain of the story. And it, it quite honestly, it just blew my mind. And, and it's one of the scenes I'm most proud to have been some part of in my whole career. And, and I've got the whole five page original art sequence there, and that's never leaving my hands. And, you know, quite honestly, that scene probably means more to me than it means to a lot of other people out there. That is a, a that, Senator Cray. That is a, yeah. a sequence. I distinctly remember it's, I love that suicide squad run and that's up there. As that one of the best moments from that run. The best moments. I, I when I read that, when I read John's plot, I thought, oh my God, this is brilliant. You know, it was it was, I think, the high point of the whole book. Um, so we've we've heard from them a couple times uh during the course of our recording, but I would love to know more. Tell us about your dogs. <laughs> of course, because that's what everyone really wants to know about. Uh we have two dogs. We have a really big dog named Copper. We got him as a little dog and he kept getting bigger. <laughs> um, and uh, my, we got him because my daughter really wanted a, a lap dog and he was a lap dog for a while, but he, he can be a multiple lap dog now. I mean, he can just like stretch across at least three people. Um, and he's a good sweetheart. He, he's just a big lug. He's just a big lug. He's a, he's a real sweetheart. But my, my daughter still wanted a lap dog. So then we ended up getting Jazzy and Jazzy's part Chihuahua. And she turned out to be much smaller than I thought she was going to be. She's only like 12 pounds, um, but she is fierce and fierce in, in the best way. She's not like a mean dog, but she, mm-hmm. she plays with Copper. They, they are best friends and she'll run with the big dogs as, as well as any of the other dogs. And um, they're two really good dogs. They're really, they really are good dogs. And um, uh, every family needs a good dog or cats. I have nothing against cats. I grew up with cats. So my mom, when she got married, her mother told my dad, you marry her, you get her cats too. (laughs) I'm pretty sure my wife decided to marry me when I was only the third person in her entire life who her cat at the time had climbed onto their lap. Ah, it was her, one of her best friends, and then me. Yep. And it was like, okay, Felix has accepted me. There's no way I can go anywhere. Exactly. I understand. Ah, that's great. Um, What What are you reading right now? What am I reading? Yes. Well, I don't read, but I do listen to audiobooks um, when I'm drawing. When I'm drawing, and um, I'm actually going to start a book that Kurt Busiek recommended. It sounded really good. Called the Golem and the Gene, Genie, or yeah, something. The Golem and the Gin. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I, and Kurt said really great things about it, so I thought I'm going to give it a try. But I haven't started that. Yet. I will admit, a lot of what I listen to, um, quite honestly, is um, uh, nonfiction. And uh, 
I, I love Robert A. Caro's Lyndon Johnson biographies, LBJ biographies. He's done, what, four or five volumes so far, and he, he's only up through the first hundred days of Johnson's uh, presidency. Uh, there's one volume, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's called the, uh, not the ascent to power, the means, the means to power. I got the name wrong, but it's all about Lyndon Johnson's 1948 run for the Senate. And in his introduction, Robert Carroll says, Johnson is the villain in this story. He does horrible, despicable, un uh, forgivable things in this story. And, and he's very upfront about it. And it is about how Johnson steals that election, steals it with everything he's got. And um, I mean, it, it climaxes with Texas, a Texas Ranger really walking down a Texas street with a gun in his hand, guarding a ballot box from desperados. It is an amazing story. And led to Johnson becoming president without, if he did not been elected to Senate, he would not have become president. And um, Johnson was a monster. He was a monster, but he was the left's monster. You know, he got civil rights passed when no one else could do it because he was a monster and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And um, he's a fascinating character. LBJ is a fascinating character. And Robert Caro does, his books are astounding, astounding. I'm sorry, I can talk for hours about that. No, that's okay. <laughs> Wait, was he was he the president that used to like make his like aides and cabinet secretaries like follow him into the bathroom to have yes talks? yes yes yeah. he would that was a means of expressing his power while he was like sitting on the toilet taking the shit he was and here's my memo to blah 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 he was he was a monster he was a bastard and I'm not sure he really had anything he believed in he believed in power and accumulating it. But um, if he was alive today, he would not be a Democrat. He would be a Republican because that's where the power resides. That's what he was interested in, you know? So, and he's known as LBJ because he modeled himself after Franklin FDR. And he even said FDR, LBJ. He did that very much on purpose, you know? Power moves all over. Um, well, uh, Carl, this has been uh, a fantastic hour of discussion. Final question, uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with Impossible Jones and everything that you have going on? Uh, I, I'm on Facebook. Well, you know, if you look up Carl Kiesel, you find me. I don't know if there's a handle there involved. And uh, I believe on Twitter, I'm just Carl slash Kiesel. Uh, and I'm, I'm, those are the only two social media things I do. And I, I, rarely, I really don't have enough time to do either of those. Um, but I don't know how Gail, Gail Simone does it. I just don't know how she has like, she writes like a novel every day on Twitter. I don't know how she does it. And they're very entertaining and, and she still does great scripts. I don't understand it. Um, but, uh, but then as far as the Kickstarter goes, if you would like to check it out, and I really hope you will like want to check it out. Um, it's very easy to find. It's just impossiblekickstarter.com takes you right there impossible kickstarter one word impossible kickstarter.com takes you to the impossible jones captain lightning kickstarter where uh you know we're racking up some stretch goals now i think we're close to unlocking a uh, a chibi sticker of one of the characters uh and um you know i i think david and i are doing real great work and i would love like more people to see it is really what it comes down to all right. Well, they've got the URL now, so they know where to go. And Carl, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's been a great pleasure. That's it for this week's show. 
As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, Chris is on Infinite Earths, and the new Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by our own Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Cap Purcell from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, when there was one set of footprints in the sand, that's when the Hulk carried you. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.